Welcome to Educators Not Robots, the podcast that humanizes the educational experience. Today, we're introducing Linda Benya, known by her students as Miss Benya. Miss Benya has been a teacher for seven years and teaches seventh grade science and seventh grade AVID at Sylvan Middle School in Citrus Heights, California. She earned her Bachelor in Science and Nutrition Science at UC Davis, her single subject teaching credential and B-clad in Spanish at Sacramento State University, and her Master of Educational Entrepreneurship at the University of Pacific. Ms. Pena is a Stockton native and is passionate about her job as an educator, especially as an AVID coordinator, as she herself had benefited from the AVID program when she was a student in the K-12 system. Linda Pena is here with us, and we kind of started the conversation without all of you listening, but you are a middle school science teacher at what school again? Sylvan Middle School in San Juan Unified. Sylvan Middle School. And you also are an AVID teacher. Um, yes. Uh, you're, you're the lead for AVID, correct, at your site, if I remember correctly? Yes. So I'm the, I'm the AVID coordinator at my site, and I, um, I also teach AVID. And my favorite stories that we have to get to at some point, you also teach sex education. Yeah. Those are the best <laughs> stories. <laughs> my favorite part. It's my favorite part of the year. <laughs> yes. To middle schoolers. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> so what we were about to ask, and I didn't want to miss it, though, how did you get started into teaching? Okay, so um, initially growing up, I always wanted to be in the medical field. I wanted to be either a doctor or a pharmacist. I was always fascinated. I always loved science. I just didn't, um, you know, I always thought I wanted to use my science knowledge into like, you know, put it into medicine. But then I realized um, in college, I didn't want to do that. And I wanted to be a teacher after I did an internship um, my, my junior year of college um, at a, at a middle school in Davis. Mm. And I figured out, Oh, I think I want to be a teacher after that experience. Um, so it just came out of nowhere. And then the next year I applied for the teaching credential program. So I, I didn't want to be a teacher for the longest time. I always thought that profession was very, you know, you always, you, you always heard stories that teachers wouldn't get paid enough. Teachers would always, you know, you would hear all these stories about, you know, parents didn't like teachers, students didn't like teachers. They were so like, un, you know, they weren't appreciated mm-hmm. in our society. So I didn't want to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. I never thought of it, even though now that I think back and now that, you know, even when I mentioned it to my, to my friends and my family, they always say, oh no, I think you did want to be a teacher, but none of us realized it. Like I was mm-hmm. always the kid that had the highlighters, that had the, the, <laughs> color pencils that had all my supplies yeah. even before I was an avid student I had all my supplies and so they're like you know and I would in the summertime I would also teach my brothers like I would have my old workbooks from school and I would like use the pages that I didn't use in class and I would like teach them those things that's super <laughs> cute how old were you when you were doing that I don't know maybe like eight or nine <laughs> um, yeah maybe eight or nine years old and I would just, I don't know, I, I love doing that. Like every, like every workbook, you know, all the kids would throw the workbooks away at the end of the year. I would, I would hold on to them and I would use them. <laughs> that is super cute. As you've been talking about it and in our previous conversation too, it's really apparent that you actually love your job. <laughs> you seem yeah, to I have do. a lot of enthusiasm about it. So I, I do. I love my job and I feel like I love it. I feel like I appreciate it more now during the pandemic than before. Wow. Like, I feel like now, 
now that you know I've been teaching um, online on Zoom for like what two weeks now, and just looking at the kids like little faces and stuff, and you know like they're like they're so willing to learn even from home. Like I just that excites me. Just yeah, like yeah. you know watching them in the screen at least like it's just it's a different experience than just you know doing asynchronous teaching and just like oh here's your assignment work on it mm-hmm. um like i just love looking at their little faces hearing their voices you know that is true <laughs> i feel like i definitely because i have to teach online too and you do like you you're only looking at their faces and that's not something you do in the classroom <laughs> you're kind of just mm-hmm. glancing at the whole room you don't unless a student's doing something wrong or doing something really right you're not looking at an individual student and now, though, <laughs> you have to see their face and you see their expressions. And I actually I have my kids do some independent work, but they stay some of them stay online with me. Um, and I joke with them on the chat. I'll send these little chats because they leave their cameras on while they're working and you could just see their little furrowed brows. And like they're like I could see they're reading on the screen and they've got tabs going because the, the reflection in their eyes. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, you guys look like academics right now. Like, Look at you. And then they turn their cameras off. So I had to stop saying that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I've seen so many. I've seen so many babies, so many pets. Oh, yeah. Like they want to tell me everything. They want to show me everything, and then I keep the chat on. I keep all these different things on. I communicate with them through Remind, too, mm-hmm. the app, um, you know, so they could, if, if they don't feel comfortable, you know, chatting there or asking questions, they could, you know, message me or, or whatever. But it's just so nice that they, you know, they they reach out more than ever, more than when I was, in, you know, in school with them. Yeah. Well, in a way, you're, you're a guest in their home, and they're a guest in yours, and some of the the barrier of being in person is removed uh, and maybe that lets people, you know, come out of their, out of their shell a little bit. So you get to see a different and you get to see them in a different light and they can present themselves in a different light. So it's definitely, I think, uh, it's a good experience for everybody. I want to go back to that internship. So tell us a little more, like what was it about that internship you did that changed, had you have a change of heart? Um, so at first I just, so the reason why I did this internship and I was telling Anthony this, um, a while back too, was because it was, I was taking 11 units, um, and I needed one more unit for, um, to get financial aid. So mm-hmm. I went to UC Davis and I just needed one more unit to get, you know, full financial aid. Um, and, and in my biology class, a person from the teaching credential program, you know, went and was like a guest speaker and talked about the, their program that, program that they had I don't remember what it was called um but it was basically interning at a middle school you could get a one unit or two I think pass no pass and I just thought oh perfect I'll <laughs> just go there you know that would be that's like my escape now I'll, I'll be able to get financial aid so I did that um so the first couple of weeks it was just I would just sit back and just observe mm-hmm. you know I, I observed how the teacher interacted with the students how the students interacted with the teacher and then slowly, you know, the teacher starts saying, okay, why don't you go and help out this group? Or why don't you go and, you know, do this, do that, like help me set up the lab or help me do that. Um, but it was just slowly. Mm-hmm. I didn't really get to teach like a full lesson, right. you know, never. But um, but it was just like I was getting little bits and pieces. And that kind of that kind of helped me realize, you know, I think I, I, I could I could really see myself doing this in the future, doing this for a living. Like I, w- it w- I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't get tired of this. I think that I think what captured my attention the most about teaching was that every day was different. 
Mm. There's no day that's the same. And I think with other jobs, every day for the most part is the same. Yeah. But the kids have good days, bad days. Um, and sometimes even though you might have the best lesson planned, you have to modify and change stuff. And I think that's what I like the most about teaching. You also have a lot of flexibility as a teacher. You decide how you want to, you know, how you want to teach, how you want to approach things. Um, there's just so many different things that captured my attention. And then, so after that program, then I decided to apply. I applied to the UC Davis teaching credential program. I got into that one too. Um, and then I got into the um, the Sac State one and I decided to do the Sac State over the UC Davis. Mm. Um, just so that I could see a different group of kids. Um, you know, I felt like the like in Davis, I got to see a very like privileged side. Yeah. Um, science um I saw that you know a lot of the kids they had like it just fascinated me because a lot of the kids had they had all this lab equipment and you know growing up when you know when I was growing up I didn't really have that like I was always a child you know my in middle school my science teacher didn't trust the whole class to do experiments <laughs> they, would, they would trust they would only trust me and I even got like, a medal at the end of the year from the teacher Aww. saying oh here's a medal for you like he would trust me with scalpels and everything and every, the rest of the class was just doing book work um but then you got to see the side in Davis where the, the kids were working I remember one time they were working on rockets they were given like little kits like yeah. actual little kits in other schools, like in Title I schools, you know, you tell the kids, okay, we need a two-liter bottle. You, you need to bring, you know, get some cardboard. You're going to make your fins. Like, they had everything. They didn't wow. need that. They had everything. They even had stickers to decorate wow. the rocket. Yeah. And I'm mad. Like, they were so <laughs> much stuff. So I decided, so when I did my credential, I decided to do the Sac State one just so that I could be placed into, placed in a Title I school, placed in the school, you know, more like a real-life scenario, not right. just, you know, like, a privileged school um, to get another perspective. And I think it worked out for the best. Was there any moments when you started working in the classroom as a student that really like stand out to you? Like any special moments with students? Um, I think the first moment probably was when um, I got like, it was like, it was like a teacher of the year thing. And um like students wrote down like, you know, like their favorite teacher, why they're nominating their teacher. And I got like all these letters. It was like my second year of teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I was like, oh, like, I guess it's making a difference in the kids' lives. Like, because before you would hear, you know, they would hear the kids say, oh, thank you. But you didn't really, you know, like, I felt appreciated, but I wasn't really sure. They were just being polite. But then <laughs> when I read the letters, I was like, oh, like they, you know, and they were specific about, you know, specific moments that I made a difference in their life then that's when I started realizing, oh, like, this is, you know, this is for real. So it's not, yeah. it's not fake. <laughs> the, the, the former belief that the students don't re- disrespect their teachers all the time definitely squashed when you start getting those little thank you letters. <laughs> yeah, when you get little letters, like a lot of, I think a lot of people think, oh, you know, teachers just want, you know, they want little presents during Christmas time or, you know, during Valentine's Day. No, like, I think a teacher just appreciates like a little note from the student yeah. saying, thank you for being my teacher or thank you for showing me how to do this. And, you know, like small things like that. Isn't it crazy how it can like change the whole thing. Like we always talk about it. It's become kind of cliche, but it's so true. Like you could have a whole week of disaster and having to modify and be on your toes. And you're like, Friday comes, you're like, why am I doing this? I should just get a new job. And then on Friday, one kid is just like, 
you're all right. You're my favorite teacher. And then they walk out and you're just like, it's all worth it. <laughs> like, it's like, well, there's those little moments like that. There's little <laughs> moments like that where, you know, I would have a bad, like, you know, I'll give you an example. Like, you know, it's hard. It's hard to pinpoint them because they always happen. Mm-hmm. Like right when I'm just like, so like, so sad about it. Like it always happens. Like I might have like a super bad period where, you know, I, you know, a kid was disrespectful and called me the B word or whatever. And then, and so I had to write a referral. And then in that same class, you have a kid that, um, that says, Oh, Miss Pena, can I help you put the Chromebooks back? Can I plug this in? Thank you for doing that for me in the same period. I'm like, you know what? I'll just, I have to keep on going. Like I can't, <laughs> like, I can't just let that moment, you know, ruin my day, but it's so weird how things balance out. So you, you got the teacher recognition as teacher of the year and during your second year of teaching. Yes. And you now you've been teaching for five years. This is my seventh start. The start of my seventh year. Oh, so okay. So you've been an avid coordinator for five years, mm-hmm. and teaching for seven. Okay, all right. Uh, have you ever heard of like the five year like slump? Or uh, uh, Rosie was telling me how like a lot of teachers at around five years they they kind of either they quit. They either quit or they're gonna no. they commit. You know what I'm saying? That's like yeah. the five year uh, mark. Yes. Did so, you see that in um, school? Usually, like three years. That's what I heard. Three years, third, the third year, fifth year. Um, yeah, that's that's common. A lot of a lot of people, a lot of teachers just drop out after they realize, do I really want to do this? Um, yeah, like you could, you see it, you see it everywhere. Mm-hmm. Like people start, you know, they have, and I feel like the best teachers are the ones that burn out the fastest mm. because they have all these great ideas and they want to make a change mm. but they can't make a change because the system is so um antiquated <laughs> and it, everything is so set in everyone's so set in their ways and i think they get frustrated and so they they quit before they even see any change wow. before they even have the opportunity to see anything wow. they just give up I feel like that's such an important thing for people to understand that the best teachers are the ones who get the most burnt out. Like that is like I, when you really want to do your best and you put your energy into it and then you're putting your energy. It's like it's like a Sisyphus type thing. Like you're putting all this energy to push this boulder and then it just falls down the other side again and you're just running around pushing boulders. And it's just, yeah it's it's awful and that you're right the system's super antiquated it's weird because it's the same thing when we're in the military we used to see that a lot as well with um it's the people who we call it drinking the kool-aid if you if you decide to just go with the flow and not try to rock the boat and just you know blend in and and uh, forget about all your little ambitions and your projects that you you know you these bright ideas you have and and just say okay i'll i'll do the you know I'll do the work as it as it's prescribed, mm-hmm. um, and those are the one. Those are the people who excel, and they go on to be, you know, the head of the department. And it's just like, or mm-hmm. in the military, those become the commanders, and it's like, the, they go in twenty years. They do the career. Yeah, they do, they the, do the full thing. It's like, why are we incentivizing this behavior? But then you have the the ones who are like just like this they, they want to do their best and they're trying to make changes because like military culture obviously has a lot of things that needs to change there's been a lot in recent news yes <laughs> and so and the same thing like you get these um these leaders and they're just like constantly questioning should i stay because they are so burnt out mm-hmm. um, and i feel like you i think um the longer you stay too 
Um, and some, like, I, I feel like a coping mechanism is teachers become numb to all this stuff. Like they just, you know, they're given like, you know, new teachers are the ones given all these, you know, the bad classes, the challenging classes, the classes with the, with the most bad kids, the classes with the most behavior problem kids, you know, and, and after a while, when they see no change, they just, you know, instead of speaking up after a while, they just become numb unless, you know, they still, you know, they're still optimistic and they still keep that hope. Mm-hmm. Just go with the flow, do 20 years, 25 years of teaching, 30 years of teaching. And then they look back and they're like, well, what did I do? You know, right. <laughs> what did I do with my life? Right. That's such a sad thing. And I think that a lot of people don't get that, which is why we do this podcast. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's all these teachers that are just, just giving up, not because they're bad teachers, but because like you said, it's cope, it's coping. They got to make it. They're just, they've gone from trying to live this life of servitude to our community's youth and children to just trying to make it a day at a time. Um, so how are you getting past that? What motivates you to say, all right, I can deal with it. It's all good. I think what, what motivates me is I try not to look at what other, I look at what other teachers are doing. I get really frustrated with adults <laughs> more than with kids. Oh, I, re- I realized too, that in, you know, in recent <laughs> times. Um, so right now during the pandemic, what motivates me is the kids just, you know, like their excitement whenever I bring up a science topic or, you know, making the kids smile, laugh, mm-hmm. you know, it's just the kids. I do it for the kids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, if I see that there's like a negative teacher, negative adult out there, you know, that works with me or that's around me or something, I just try to block that away from me and, you know, and keep on doing what feels right to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have to be outspoken and do, you know, cause I'm not, I'm not a super outspoken person, but you know, I, I think I, I think I lead with action. Yeah. And I feel like I don't I don't think I, I don't think I need to be super, you know, loud. And, you know, as long as I know I'm doing the right thing, I'll just keep on doing it. Like, you know, if I you know, for me, what what feels right, if I you know what I did, what I did before the, the start the start of the school year was I sent every single one of my students an email before mm-hmm. I even met them. That took me forever. But I sent <laughs> a personalized email. And, you know, like I don't you know, some teachers were like, oh, well, why are you doing that? Like that takes that takes so long. Why don't you send them a mass email? email I was like I could do that I know that would take you know that would that would take so little of my time but I want to send a personalized email just because I want to get to know the kids especially now during you know virtual like it's so hard for me to get to know them I want to start building that connection with them you know before day one and so I feel like it's working out so far you know the kids are very you know they're starting to get you know be more open and share about their lives show me their little baby brothers sisters (laughs) (laughs) So it sounds but I like think the, strategy, the kids are the ones that motivate me the, the most right now. It sounds like the strategy is focus on what you love and not on what you hate about it. So mm-hmm. uh, I can definitely feel the love that you have for the kids. I mean, it's 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 very obvious that you actually care and you want them to know it. And and I think at the end of the day, the fact that they do know it is what what matters or what counts. So then, so you teach, so you teach science and, um, but then you, you had gotten involved with the AVID program and like, like Anthony said, it was two years into your teaching career. So talk about how you got into AVID. Um, so I started, I was an AVID student when I was in middle school. So, um, seventh, eighth grade, I was a, I was an AVID student. And then in high school, I was also an AVID student. So total of six years. 
uh, when I realized I wanted to be a teacher, I, I, I knew that I wanted to be involved in AVID somehow. Mm-hmm. Somehow. I didn't know how, but I was like, I need to know. I need to be part of AVID. I need to be I, I need to be in a school that has AVID. So what I did was, you know, the school that I the school that I ended up working, the school that I'm at now, they have, you know, they have AVID. Um, and my um, my first year, what I did, what I I, fig- I I found out that there was an AVID site team program, AVID site team. So my goal was to join the site team, get to know, you know, how to get involved in AVID. And I even asked the coordinator at the time, like, how do you want me to get involved in AVID? I want to get involved. I was an AVID student. And, um, and then she, you know, she said, oh, you could be a guest speaker in my AVID class. So I was a guest speaker in her AVID class. I slowly got immersed. And then my, what is it, my second year, yeah, my second year, I think, of teaching, um, she decided to um, step down. Mm. Um, she was like, I've been, a, I've been an AVID coordinator for a, for a while. I think I'm going to step down. Um, you know, would you take over? And I was like, oh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and um She's like, I'll help you. And she helped me like the first year, like she helped me with everything. Oh, like, oh, you need to fill out these paper, this paperwork, get this data. Um, and she, she helped me out so much and she still does. Um, but it was, it's just, I was kind of scared. I was like, okay, that's so much responsibility being in charge of a program that's been around at the school for since 1998. Right. What if I messed up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Definitely- that was my year, like messing it up. But um, but yeah, I slowly try to get involved in it because I just because I knew it made su- it made such a big Im- like difference in my life. I knew I wanted to give back to the program. And talk a little bit about what AVID is for people who don't know. AVID is a college prep program. It stands for um, Advancement via Individual Determination. Um, it's aimed for students that are first generation college students, um, students that you know. Well, it's a college prep course, so students want to go to college. These students. You know, like you, 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 um, you, they research college, they research colleges, they, you know, research careers, they learn organization skills, um, they learn how to do the famous Cornell notes or focus notes now, um, mm-hmm. tutorial. Um, we focus a lot on their grades. Um, we do, we go on field trips, um, college prep, like the SATs. Well, I don't, now it's not that important. SATs, ACTs. Um, but yeah, we just do a different, a wide variety of different things to help the to help prepare the kids for high school, college, and real life. And when your your experience with it, tell us about that. When so you were a student, and you went through the AVID program. How did you even get started? What was your first impression of it as a student? That kind of thing. What tell us about that? As a student, I was I was excited. You know, I already told you guys I love collecting like my supplies, having <laughs> the, the highlighters, and so you know we did like planner checks, like planner checks, binder checks, like every week or so. So I was just prepared. I love that. I love that part of Abbott, <laughs> and I just I love I love that family because there's you know you do have like an Abbott family. You see each other as a family, and so I love that aspect of Abbott. So. Um, all the good things that I, all the good things and even bad things from my avid experience I try to bring them into the classroom so I tell the kids like I know you hate doing tutorials or I know you hate doing this because I was in your shoes I hated that but I still you know dealt with it I know how you're feeling um and then you know when it comes to you know it's hard if you're a first generation college student it's so hard to see what's coming next mm-hmm. and so when I you know when I'm talking to them about you know college and stuff I try to put that in perspective like 
you know, when I was their age today, what were my, what were my assumptions about college? Like, what did I think college was like? And so I tried to connect with, with, you know, how my life was at that age and then connected with my, my lived experience with, mm. you know, college. So were you recruited into AVID because you were a uh, first generation going into uh, like college, college bound person or how did that work out? Yeah. How do you, how do, how are AVID students identified? Um, it, it depends. And different sites is different. In my case, um, there was just, there was a person that came from a school, from middle, from a middle school, um, and said, oh, I was a sixth grade and said, oh, look, we have this college prep program. You could apply. And I just fill out the application. You wrote like an essay and fill out, filled out like, you know, all these different questions. Um, and then I got in. Um, in my in in my school, we fill out, we have an AVID application where they we have all these questions for them and then um, they could answer them. We also have our site team also comes up with a list of prospective students. So we'll send out the application to those kids first. And um, and we know that you know we know those kids are called are avid like material by you know if those kids are respectful they you know they you think they want to go to college um, you know not necessarily like being first generation that's important college student but you know some we also recruit kids that aren't first generation college students mm-hmm. that might need that extra support um, mm-hmm. you know that might that that we know might need like a, some sort of family like an avid family because mm-hmm. they might not have a family at home. Um, there's just different, you know, good grades are important, but it's also a wide variety of things that we see in a student. Um, I know that some, some people are like, oh, well, you know, this kid's in honors. Shouldn't this kid be an avid? I'm like, you know, we try to look for the average student, not necessarily just honors material, but you know, if they're honors material, you know, and they want to go to college and they're the first in their family, then yeah, go for it. Like that, that works. It's so interesting because I actually remember when AVID started because I, I was a freshman in high school in 1998 and um, and I was I was identified to be an honor student and then I had met some AVID kids and they were like, oh, we're doing this AVID. And sometimes it did come up where they were like, they would ask me like, well, how come you're not an AVID? Or like the teachers would say something and then I'd be like, well, I nobody I heard of it, but nobody sat with me because they I remember the counselors when they come to you in eighth grade. And they were like, you're going to be in honors. And they were like, so we're just not going to tell you about AVID. <laughs> I was like, mm-hmm. okay. And I was a first-generation college student, and it was a struggle because I had to figure it out on my own. And so I think about, as you're talking, like, for the honors students, there's – it's just it, – it, I guess it was assumed that my parents went to college, or I don't know, because they definitely didn't. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, it's just like – I don't know. So it's interesting that um, – I don't know. We still haven't fixed that yet, to be honest. <laughs> Where our, our honor kids are still kind of tend to be a privileged class. And then a few first generations, you know, or, you know, students who probably would benefit from AVID end up in honors, too, because they're, you know, they're, they're doing really well academically. And then it's like we're not thinking about, well, since they're honor students or, or AP, AP students, because we don't really do honors anymore, Um are we making sure that they actually have what they need because not all AP students have college bound parents or their parents were never college bound. And so it's really interesting. Um, you talk about a little bit about AVID Excel sometimes. What, what is AVID Excel specifically? AVID Excel is, um, so the, there's an AVID elective and that's the normal AVID that we hear, you know, at school, 
Um, Avid Excel, it's, um, it's aimed for middle school kids. I think middle school. Um, it's, um, it's an Avid program for English, long-term English learners. Hmm. Um, these are kids that have been EL kids for, I don't know, six years or more, I think, hmm. five, six years or more. Um, you know, some of them were born here in the U.S. Some of them were born in a different country, but they haven't exited the, you know, EL program. They're right. still EL students. Um, and so Avid Excel is, a it's kind of like an elective, but it's not because these kids can't have electives because they haven't exited the EL program. Um, so it's like a mesh between ELD and um, Avid. So we try to teach them. We try to scaffold. We scaffold more. They have more routines. Um, to help them pass the um, the LPAC, mm-hmm. the test they have to take to, you know, that they have to pass in order to exit exit out from ELD. Um, but at the same time, they're also getting the college prep, you know, college prep stuff. So they're researching about colleges. They're, you know, learning how to organize themselves. They're um, learning about careers. So it's just, it's like a two for one. Yeah. I just want to point out, it is ridiculous that a student would be identified as an EL for six years. And I I think what people don't understand is, like you said, some of them are born here in the United States, but their parents might speak their native language strictly at home. When they come to school, that's where they're going to learn English because English is, is spoken on campus. Unless it's an immersion program for language, they're going to be speaking English. So it's like really to really think about this, though students spend more time with us than they do with their parents by the time they're in the K through 12 system. So (laughs) it's like if the majority of their day is with us speaking English and they're still six years later, not passing the LPAC, what are we not doing to help those kids? Like that is so ridiculous. No, I just, I feel I'm, I'm conflicted about that test. Like I'm, I'm, I really don't agree with how, how teachers or how a district decides when a kid should be exited. Mm. I don't agree with that because I feel like that test, if you were to give that test to a normal, to a native English speaker, some kids won't pass that test. Oh, that's interesting. I don't understand how they could assume that, oh, if you pass, if an English learner passes this test and they're good to go, you know, like norm, like native English speakers can't even pass that test. That test is kind of, it's hard. And I've so I actually looked at that it, test. But you do bring up a good point, though, too. When I when I um, am able to attend trainings for um, English language development training, and we'll talk about the different scaffolding techniques that you can use, I always, every time I'll learn a technique, and I'll be like, all the kids need to learn this technique, like the thing that it teaches. And I've said that before. I was like, I'm starting to feel like every student is an English language learner because, mm-hmm. because we're not just talking about conversational English. We're talking about academic English. And mm-hmm. our native English speakers who only speak English, yeah, some of those some of those scaffolds I use whether I have an ELD or not or an ELL or not because I'm like all these kids don't know how to speak academic English and these scaffolds work for all of them, which is really interesting. Um, so it actually now like putting that together is like oh it makes sense. I'm the Alpac is is testing for academic English not conversational English or like everyday well, English. I think it's, it's broken down into different categories. So I think they have a speaking, they have a writing part, and they have, I think, a reading part, I think. Mm-hmm. I think they have three, three different things that they have, that they test for. But it's just, you know, from, I, I feel like it's like another hoop that they have mm-hmm. to pass. Another thing that they, it's just, you know, it's so hard to exit ELD for a lot of kids. Not because they, you know, not because they don't know English, but because, 
there's just so many hoops. And then once they pass in some districts, once they pass that test, they can't even exit out the program unless they have, you know, unless they um, score well on their um, the test, the smarter balance one. Oh yeah, if they don't score well on that, then they're like, oh no, well you don't, you you know, you're still like below basic or whatever. You can't, um, you can't exit out of this. You yeah. have to wait. Even the though they passed that test. So the and so at that point, the kids are kind of sad and depressed because they're like, well, I've been in this program for so long. There's no way for me to get out. <laughs> and then they can't take electives, which is like a punishment for not being able to, to pass these tests. So Anthony was just asking the SBAC. The SBAC is the, the standardized test that we now have. Like when we were young, it was, it was STAR. Did you ever take the STAR test when you were in? I don't remember. Oh, okay. Well, I remember it was well, in California. We grew up in a different state, so it's it's probably something else. And, it's called uh, something. Was else. Star only California? And I didn't even know that. <laughs> so you have a state test. Yeah. There's state tests. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. State standardized. And in tests. Virginia, it was like Terra Nova or something. Oh like okay. Oh, well, they were into the space thing. I guess stars, Terra Nova. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whatever it was, I hated it too, <laughs> and I hate it still. Yeah, you know what? Now that okay, I'm thinking back to my school days. You know the good old days. Um, I was the only minority in like the AP program for a while. I think at my high school, I was the only Filipino in my high school, though. So it kind of tells you, <laughs> I, I was one of two. The other one being my sister. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, and like at the time, we didn't have an AVID program in Virginia, but I do recall there being like. I don't know. It was just an odd thing. I didn't even think about it. I was I'm a first generation in terms of my parents went to school in the Philippines. So like their entire like idea of what I was supposed to do was just be valedictorian and then the rest would just happen kind of thing. So they were like just do really good in high school. And I was like, "Okay." They didn't know anything about applying to colleges though. They didn't tell me I had to apply. They didn't tell me there was a, a standardized test to take. They were completely surprised by this. They didn't even know if there were good schools or bad schools near us. They had no clue. They were just like, uh, be a nurse. <laughs> like that was their that was their foundation. That was like kind of um, what they were familiar with. Um, is that the case for most of the avid kids? Is that like sort of the background that it's intended for? To open up their eyes, yes. So they could see what, you know, what else is out there. Um Cause you know, like even like for me growing up in Stockton, like it was, I felt like I didn't really know much. Like I didn't know what was out there. Like I knew there was UOP, I knew there was Delta, but I didn't know what else was out there. I didn't know how to get there, how to get to college. You know, I didn't know about the the test that they had. You know, that you had to take. I didn't know about the financial aid stuff. Mm. Um, and I know that a lot of a lot of kids that decide to take Avid, it's because of that. They just don't know how. They know they know they want to get there, but they just don't know the steps that they need to take before they get there. You were like, you were like me. You were trying to teach your parents how to do the FAFSA. It's like, <laughs> how backwards is this? It's like, I have no idea about finances whatsoever, and I'm going to teach you to do this financial. No, the thing about Avid in high school was that you know I had I had I had a great counselor, had great Avid teachers. Mm. Like they they had they you know. They went, with, they went with us like every single step. Like I remember filling, I still remember filling out my UC application and, you know, and filling out, 
you know, the fast food. I remember those moments. Wow. Like they would do they like every month, I think they would do um, these like sessions where, you know, in high school with parents and my mom would, we, my mom would always go like she was always super involved. Wow. But, you know, she just didn't know how to get there because my mom, you know, my mom also she went to school in, in, in Mexico, but she didn't know how school was kind of like in your case, Anthony, yeah. okay. um, you know, how to get to, you know, how to apply for college here. Right. Cause it's so different. It's right. very different. And so, um, you know, I just, I remember those moments and, you know, I, I don't think I would have been able to do it by myself because there were so many questions that I, I was just not sure. And then the language in those applications, you know, I didn't understand some of the words. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was just like, what does this mean? Wait, what do you want? Like, what what section of the taxes do you want? Right. Like, I don't know what numbers <laughs> I could put. And so it was just so hard. Um, but that's that's what I loved about the AVID program in high school, that they just went, you know, they, they worked on everything with you together. So you weren't doing it by yourself. It's so obvious. It's like a huge need, especially, I think, in the West Coast, where the where the Hispanic population is huge. Mm-hmm. And and it's a simple, it's literally a translation issue where people aren't getting access. It's like, if they knew this stuff, they would obviously go after this stuff, but no one's giving them that basic introduction to this is how you do it. And Avid kind of filled that gap. And I think that's amazing. I was reading up on it. I was like, oh, so it ha- you know it's all started in San Diego. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. That's like super, super um, diverse down there. And I'm sure that there was a lot of issues where it was simply just again like introducing basic steps and and getting people on the right track and after that you know all the all the changes were were undeniable they could see the progress that was being had so uh, it's it's no wonder that it's still going strong and that and that it's benefiting so many people and yet it's not in every school which is i think crazy <laughs> it should you would think every school would have it Mm-hmm. But I know yeah. we are my site had issues. We had it a few years ago, I think for a year or two, and then we didn't have funding for it. So we just it just stopped. It was that was it. And it was so it was it was already devastating to lose the program. When I, apparently they'd had it before we got the program back and then the funding was cut or something happened to the funding. And then all those kids who started only got two years of it. And or one for new students, and then it was like, well, that's it, and it just kind of went away, and it was really frustrating, um, because it's such a necessary program, and I loved it because when I get avid students, they'd have their little schedulers and they like have their little things, and I would be like, whoa, what are you doing over there? Like, I, I can I get some of those for the rest of the class? Like, you know, like all of you need to learn how to organize your schedule. <laughs> like, that's yeah. there's like really important stuff that's taught. Um, yeah, what I realize is that, you know, there's the AVID program is going strong, but I feel like there's also some AVID programs that are closing down in some schools. Um, it could also, it, it could be because of the funding, but I feel like in most cases, it's not so much the funding, it's more the teacher commitment. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot, it, it takes a lot of your energy to be an AVID teacher mm-hmm. because these, because the kids, they start, like, remember I mentioned the AVID family, they see you as a, as a part of the family so, you know, any little thing that happens to them, they come to you and they tell you everything. You know, there'll be moments like my first, my, my first group of advocates where I would just like, I would cry with them. Hmm. And, you know, and then if something happened in my life and I, I would cry, I would cry and they would cry with me. And so it was just, you know, it was like an emotional thing. Like that's, that's my place where I know that I feel I could actually, like I could be myself with my kids, you know, with my science kids too, but I could actually be, you know, more open with my advocates. And I know that they'll understand. 
Yeah. Just because I give them that that place to express themselves. Um, but I feel that Abbott program, it requires a lot of committed teachers, yeah. teachers that are willing to um, put in the effort. Because like what a lot of people don't realize is that it's not just teaching the Abbott class. You also have to do a lot of data collection. Right. You have to do, um, you have to accumulate evidence. You, they, they do site visits. They do so many different things like you in order to keep your, your program running. Mm-hmm. Um, that it just, it takes too much. And if you're not willing to put that extra time, especially as a coordinator, then, you know, people will be like, okay, you know what, I'm out. I'll just, I'll yeah. just teach my regular subjects. And you, and there's like annual training too, right? Like, don't mm-hmm. you, you guys have to go to like a summer conference or some kind of yeah. something. Yeah, it is. It's a huge commitment, but it's so well, it's like one year thing. If you want to, you know, if you want to keep on learning more then you go more years, but but it's really, honestly, I feel like the best trainings are the AVID trainings. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, I really recommend those. Like, they teach you so many different strategies. Mm-hmm. They teach you how to be a better teacher. Even if you're not an AVID teacher, you learn so many different strategies. They have, you know, they have they have strands for English teachers, math teachers, science teachers on how to incorporate different strategies. Mm-hmm. And it's just great. Like, for any subject. I was really fortunate when I was going, I went through Teachers College of San Joaquin County and one of my instructors that I had for a while, I was really lucky to have her a couple times. She was an AVID teacher. So she would tell us like, I'm going to, some of the stuff I'm going to teach you is from AVID. And she would just like, and, and this was, and she was working with all the, the single subject English teachers. And she was just like, here's some things that we learned in AVID, full disclosure, but like, this is what we're, this is what you need because it works. And I just remember being so mm-hmm. grateful that I, I was able to have her as a teacher and she was able to uh, explain that to us, these strategies. And, um, it is, it's such a, it, it's definitely universal. I think that all kids, all teachers should have some sense of an avid training. So what are, what are the resources available as a coordinator to support your avid teachers? Like what, how are we incentivizing the avid program for teachers? How are we recruiting teachers to do this? Uh, you know, it's very intensive. So I just don't, I don't, it seems so crazy to me that schools wouldn't be doing everything they could to ensure that they had teachers wanting to do this program. Is that not the case? Like what's going on with that? Um, I, I'm fortunate that at my site, there's there's a lot of people willing to do AVID. Um, there's, um, you know, there's some people in my site too that have been, that were AVID students themselves. So they, you know, that motivates them to, you know, be, you know, be an AVID, be involved in AVID. But um, I feel like a lot of, usually the younger teachers are the ones that are, you know, the mo- most willing to be an, part of AVID, you know, be AVID teachers just because, you know, they have more energy mm-hmm. than older teachers. But, um, you know, in some districts, they also, we get a stipend, but it's not too much. It's like, what, 250 for, for supplies? Um, <laughs> each person, coordinator gets another 250 in my district. So a total of 500 a year <laughs> with all that stuff. <laughs> but it, it's not too much. You know, after taxes, what is it? It's not too much. <laughs> but, um, but I feel like the reason why a lot of us just do AVID is because, you know, we just, we believe in the program. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, we believe we, you know, we have we've had students that come back and say how how thankful they are, how, you know, how great it was. And, um, you know, next year I'm going to have my first group of kids that will, you know, that will graduate from from high school. And I'm hoping that, you know, that when they go to college, they come back and they they're guest speakers in my avid class and they get to say their experience. But I think it's just, you know, what motivates us is, you know, how the kids are doing and for sure, for sure yeah i mean it's a family like you said if you if you 
if they go on and do big things, they're gonna want to come back and tell you those things, of course. And they're gonna you're gonna be able to celebrate that with them. That's amazing. Speaking of supporting teachers, I want to I definitely want to talk about this because I'm curious. <laughs> so just background, Linda and I know each other because we went through the educational entrepreneurship program at University of Pacific, also known as UOP. And you, when we graduated, were working on a project to support teachers of color, like creating these like kind of like affinity groups, I guess you would call it. Like you want to talk a little bit about what that is and where you're at at this point? Yeah, so I was, um, so my, my project was creating these um, groups for minority teachers where they could express themselves. They could um, kind of like an AVID program, but for minority teachers where, you know, they have, you know, a safe place to express, to get resources um, and stuff like that. Um, right now, so right now, just because of the pandemic, I haven't officially started, started my, started my plan. I have my, I have my agendas already. I have everything ready. I just, I've been waiting a little bit to see what happens if we could go back and back to school. And then these last couple of weeks have just been crazy with, you know, trying to adapt with all the, trying to, trying to adapt with all the technology, changing my lessons. Um, I haven't, I haven't done anything yet um, mm-hmm. this fall, but I will. I'm hoping that maybe in a month or two, I, I will. I'll start. I think that makes sense because you said earlier, you, you, you're just in your second week of school, right? You guys just started two yeah, weeks ago. Second yeah. Week so it's like definitely not the right time to be like, want to yeah. go to this meeting? No. <laughs> like, yeah, no, no, no one wants to meet right now. No one wants, wants to meet. And so, you know, I haven't even seen some of my, some of my, um, some of my teachers, you know, at, at my, at my site outside mm-hmm. of the um, the regular staff meetings I haven't even had a time you know had a chance to communicate with them just yeah. because everyone's overwhelmed right. and so I want to yeah, I want to just wait and wait a little bit until I'm settled down they're a little bit settled down and relaxed and then I'm like okay now we could talk about it <laughs> so let's talk then a little about the inspiration behind that project like how what what was the seed that that you are now fertilizing so the reason why I came up with this was because of the whole AVID program. Like I just, you know, I saw that, it, you know, it works with that with kids, you know, this type of program would also work with adults, mm. you know, and a lot of, a lot of teachers of color don't get that support. You know, they, they, well, you don't even see a lot of teachers of color in right. schools. And so, you know, you kind of just feel like an outsider or like the token colored, colored teacher, mm. right. <laughs> and, you know, there's like a kid that, you know, there's like a phone call that needs to be made and, you know, there's no one that speaks Spanish. Well, they're going to call on you, yeah. the teacher that's like the Chicana teacher. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but it's just so weird, you know, to be in a, in a school site where most of the teachers are not, are not minorities. And, you know, it would be nice to have that support where teachers kind of, you know, they look like you. They might not teach the same subject as you, but they at least look like you and they might go through the same struggles as you. Mm-hmm. What I'm curious is the because this is true. So my school, our ethnic demographics don't match our teaching staff demographics right so predominantly white teaching staff predominantly hispanic student body is that is that true for your school as well yeah there's definitely more there's definitely more white teachers at my school than you know there's more minority students than you know white teachers yeah. at our school yeah but we are we are growing there's more minority teachers now but um but yeah, there's there's a that discrepancy. And I think a lot of schools are like that. Oh, I think yeah. I don't think I've ever been to a school where it's not like that where most of the kids are minorities and then you know most of the teachers are, you know, white teachers. Like I haven't really seen, you know, seen it flipped. 
I actually I don't want to I don't want to name the school because I don't know if this is true, but I heard a rumor there is a high school in Stockton where they have staff meetings in English and then they have a Spanish one because there is a predominantly Hispanic staff. I have not verified that rumor mm. yet, but if it was true, I think cool. that would is amazing. <laughs> like, that, that is cool. That there's well, a- well, maybe in the English immersion schools, the Spanish yeah. immersion schools, English ones, maybe those in those schools, yeah, they probably would have that. Um, they probably would have, you know, the, the, the teachers would represent the students. Um, but in most cases, in most schools in the U.S., I don't think that's representative. There's just so many, I feel like there's just so many different hoops to be a teacher. Like, I know so many people that want to be a teacher, but they can't be a teacher because, you know, we have to pass the C-Best. Yeah. Then pass the C-Set, three C-Sets, or maybe even four. Like, I had to pass four C-Sets because yeah. I, I got a Spanish authorization. And so, you know, <laughs> then, and then there's just so many hoops that you have to pass to be a teacher, and especially for a minority. It's just so hard because, you know, English is your second language mm-hmm. in most cases. And you know, you're trying to juggle with, with, you know, two languages and then, you know, with the, the you know, with all the steps to be a teacher, because it's not like, oh, I want to be a teacher now and then you're a teacher in a week. Like, right. it's just build up to that. And it's just so hard. And, and so I just get excited when I see teachers that resemble me because they, you know, they went through the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I just want to hear their story. Yeah. Kind of like what you get, you know, you guys want to hear, you know, teacher stories, you know, like just hearing their story, how they got there, you know, what motivated them. Did that, was that true for you too while you were a student at, at Davis? Uh, I don't, I'm asking because when I was in college, it was a huge deal that I was invited to go there uh, as an admitted student because my idea of the school I went to was that I was going to be the only, once again, the only brown kid around there. But when I went to go visit, I was, you know, pleasantly surprised and, and, you know, just amazed at the amount of different types of people that I encountered. And I was like, oh, yeah, I could totally go to this place. But prior to that experience, I was just, I was dead set. I was like, <laughs> I don't know why they admitted me. Um, I, I'm going to be the only one there. I really believe that. So uh, did you feel that way at all at UC Davis? I don't know what Davis is like, but. Um, Davis, well, I think there's a lot of there's high percentages of Asian students in Davis and mm-hmm. um, a lot of, you know, white students. There, there's some Hispanic students, Hispanic Latino students there. Um, I was fortunate that um, most of the, most of them my time in Davis, I actually lived with people that resembled me. Like mm-hmm. I lived with people that were Chicanas, um, you know, like their, my first year, there were like nine of us. <laughs> I live in a suite. Um, maybe I, I think no. I, I was the only. I was the only. I was the only Mexican American that one. Like mo- the, all the other ones were. There's only white. One white student, and then the rest were Asian. Well, mm-hmm. oh, actually, one was Filipina. So, <laughs> so um, and the rest were were Asian. Um, and then my second year, um, we were all Latinas. Wow. So your your first experience with like being in a sort of an all white space was as a teacher then. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, growing up in Stockton, I didn't see that. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, what wow. I loved about Stockton was, you know, everything was so diverse. Like, I got to, you know, I got to hang out with people that were Filipinos, people that were, you know, Indian, people that were white, you know, people that were African American. So I was just so used to that. Yeah. And so, you know, even though, like, sometimes I just feel, sometimes I feel weird when I'm like in the in the staff lounge and having a conversation. Like, their experience, their life experiences are so oh, much different than mine. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> and I don't even know what to say. I'm like, I don't, I don't know, know how to contribute to this conversation. <laughs> oh, when I was in second grade, my dad was stationed because he was in the military. 
my dad was in the army and we moved from Virginia to North Dakota. And I spent the next four years explaining to people where the Philippines was <laughs> <laughs> and that I wasn't from the Sioux tribe <laughs> because <laughs> I used to hang out on the reservation with my buddies and they were like, which tribe? <laughs> and I was like, the Filipino tribe, man. <laughs> but it, it's just a crazy feeling when you finally get to a place where people know what you're talking about when you start talking about your family. And it's like, what? You know that? It's just so crazy after all. Like my life, was right? just, it was just back to back to back. Like I have no idea. It's like, okay, let me, I'll, let me break it down for you. <laughs> like, okay, here's the map. See where Japan is. <laughs> you kind of know what Japan, you know, everyone kind of knows what Japan is. So I'm like, okay, if you know what Japan is, now I can show you where the Philippines is. Let me tell you a little bit about that place. <laughs> and this is a guy who never lived in the Philippines. Like, I, you know, mm -hmm. I only visited very rarely as a kid. But I had to make, you know, that kind of effort just to, like, get people to understand, like, I am not from this area. Like, I don't understand what's going on. And I actually had a kid when I went to Virginia as an eighth grader ask me, are you black or are you white? <laughs> like, that was an actual <laughs> question I got. I was like... How, how do you come up with this stuff? <laughs> oh, man. You're just like, no. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, then compared, compared to, you know, Virginia compared to Stockton, you know, mm -hmm. in Stockton, there's a whole bunch of Filipinos. And yeah. so you probably, you know, you, you felt like you didn't have to, you know, explain now, yourself. Now people are like, you're Cambodian, right? <laughs> Not even, because I think we yeah. have a lot of Filipinos here. I actually, because going to the South, because I was in the military and... The thing that stood out to me, I always tell this story, when I was 18 years old, I went to basic training, and I became aware of how few black people we have in California. And um, and because when you go to the South, there's a lot more black people just anywhere, as opposed to here. And this is the thing, I had ended up talking to some of my battle buddies about it, because they would say, oh, you're from California? That's so cool. It's so diverse. It's like a melting pot, blah, blah, blah. And I remember one day being like, actually no and they're like what do you mean no and then I, I had to explain how there's like regions you know there's like well like it's Asians live in this area code and black people live in that area code and Mexicans live all over the place and then white people just you know and it was like and I go so we don't really see each other like all the schools I went to were predominantly Hispanic and then the next thing you had were South South Asians you had Vietnamese and Cambodian and, and then we also had Filipino which they kind of go Hispanic or Asian we don't know <laughs> like they just it was like and so one day when um so I remember having explained that to people I was like I just I go, but I've never really, um, we don't, there's not, I've never had a lot of black people in my, black kids in my school. Um, it's just, I don't, they, they all went to a certain school and it wasn't mine. And, um, but then as years went by, I remember one day, actually, Anthony and I were hanging out with one of his friends and we were talking about what is Jeet Stockton is like one of the top cities with a black population. It's one of the largest black populations in California. Yeah, so Stockton... It's between Oakland, Richmond, and Stockton. We're supposedly, we're, we're at the top of having a largest black population, but we still really don't have that many black residents. Mm -hmm. I think it's like 13% of the city, which is not a lot. <laughs> and so I remember him and his friend were kind of joking about that, like, oh my gosh, this is the top five, and there's only 13% of the demographic. That's pretty <laughs> sad, California. But then I said, well, all due respect, and I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I agree, um, when I was in the South, I was shocked by how few Asians there were. 
And it was kind of like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's super true. Because yeah. <laughs> all my friends growing up were Asian or Hispanic. Well, that's what, I, that's what I was saying. Like, when I moved here, people knew different kinds of Asian. And that blew me away. I was like, they were like, are you Cambodian, Vietnamese, or are you Thai? And I was like, whoa, whoa. You just said Asian. I identify as Pacific Islander. <laughs> no, but it's funny because, like, then I do get I, Hawaiian, Samoan, uh, Chamorro. Are you from Guam? Like, and I love it. I love the fact that that's the conversation. It's like, yes. It's not just, are you Asian? No, it's, it's like, like, what kind of black person are you? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> no. Yeah, and it's really interesting. Like, it's a completely different dynamic here. But yeah. definitely, obviously, we still have our issues because, um, like, just I just... we got a mix, yeah. We've no got... We do. I, I can see why people misconstrued when I was in basic training that California was so diverse. Like, we do have a lot of populations, but we're not doing... We're definitely not a mixing pot. We are not mixing. <laughs> it's there's there's a, there's not a lot of that. And then we do find ourselves in situations where, like in teaching, like you said, um, there's a predominantly white staff, and that can be really hard for teachers of color um, to find each other to to be able to kind of be each other's safe haven. And I don't think people who I don't I don't know if people understand that white people specifically that when you're a minority constantly you need a break and so um having something like an affinity group or just like a place where you can go and be with people who share the same culture as you is that respite that you need from being around people where you have to explain you know certain things or and or they're 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 saying things like you said that they're talking about things that you cannot relate to and you're just feeling out of the loop all the time and you need to feel like you got to get pulled back into a community. And I think people, white people specifically don't understand that because that's not really something that exists for them. Um, so I think I, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to hearing about what happens when you are able to do a, your, your group work with the teachers at your school because I think that's going to be really good for everybody. And be a huge improvement on, on the situation if you were able to incorporate that, having that kind of space in, in college for me was one of the reasons why I stayed in college. I, I had a support group of people there that I knew I could turn to and, and would get me involved and would look out for me, basically. And I think I, and they also helped me. We, all, we were all on the same kind of journey to sort of I like get an understanding of our history an understanding of our identities. Like some, some of the information that wasn't shared with us about our histories, right? So like one of the biggest things, I just recently got back in touch with one of my old professors who reached out to me after 10 years, you know, to do a project with him. But he's, he's like, he was a, he was my playwriting professor. But in his class, I wrote about Filipino history. And it was the only class other than US military history that I did anything regarding Filipino history. I did any work, I wrote papers in playwriting and plays in playwriting about Filipino history because that's what I, I was like can I do this somewhere and it happened so happened to be with my Filipino professor who was a theater professor you know but hey I had to get it somewhere right but the mm-hmm. fact is like it's so crazy that the that information is is you know, it's just denied to us and that I spent you know I feel like I spent my whole life learning the intricacies of each president and every mistress they had and the notes they wrote to the mistresses. <laughs> and I'm like, can I get one, <laughs> one paper? 
can I write can I read one chapter about some of these people that shaped you know the 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 cities in the Philippines and and that affected the 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 Filipino communities that would become the first Filipinos in America I had to do my own research to learn that Stockton was like the spot for Filipinos to come to and like it was just a huge thing like for me when I first came mm-hmm. here I was like Rosalie I can't believe you live near Stockton I didn't even know <laughs> so like that's like our when we first met that was one of the first things like we had met in Korea and then he's like where are you from I was like oh, I'm from this small town in California you're not gonna know and he's like try me everybody always Everybody thinks they know California when they're not from California. And um, and I was like, well, it's this, I go, the largest city is this city called Stockton. And he was like, oh, my God, Stockton, Stockton, California. And I was like, <laughs> I was like no way. I was like, are you? I hear someone that excited. <laughs> yeah. Ex- she definitely was surprised that I was excited about Stockton. And I was, I was like, are you being sarcastic right now? Or like, and he's like, no, Stockton. He's like the Filipinos. And then he just like, and I was like, yeah, we have Filipinos. And I remember him asking me that too. He goes, so did you grow up with Filipino friends? And I was like, yeah. I did not, of course. Like- I was like, some of my best friends are Filipino, actually. And he's like, really? And I go, you are Filipino, right? And he's like, I never had Filipino friends. <laughs> not in high school. I had to wait to college to find Filipino, like a real big group of Filipinos to hang out with. But he, I didn't even know. I, I knew we had a, a large Filipino population because I grew up here, but I didn't know, like, we have a huge history in Filipino mm-hmm. culture. And I was completely, he had to teach me that. And I'm like, Mm-hmm. dang like i was from here like and how come no yeah. one taught us that we're denied that yeah. information it's just straight up like hey you need to mm-hmm. learn about mr and mrs uh, president madison and his mistress or whatever that's more important we got to read the you know the mm-hmm. original source of like every civil war soldier letter home it's like dude i don't need that i don't i i get it yeah. it's important but can i just get a little bit of the other cultures i just want to know a little bit about what happened like they literally didn't talk about Dolores Huerta at all how yeah imagine imagine if the kids imagine if the kids were were to you know the teachers the history teachers were to teach them look this is what makes Stockton you know Stockton so important you know your people did this your people did that you know the farm workers did this you know it's just stuff like that you know Growing up, I didn't know, like, kind of like what you said, like, I didn't know all this, all this information about Stockton. Like, I love learning about history. You know, I would go to Hagen Museum and I was just like, I would like, look at all that stuff. And, yeah. you know, I would go to like Bank of Stockton, like the old Bank of Stockton and yeah. then look at the pictures and like read all the information. I would get so excited, but I didn't really know, you know, too much about the information until once I left Stockton. Once I left Stockton, that's when I realized, oh, look, Stockton is not, you know, it's not a super bad place like pick, people picture it to be um and it's weird because anthony was so excited about stockton and usually when i tell people about stockton they're like oh my god like yeah. they're like have you ever gone shot did like did any like are yeah. you okay like or they assume that you're tough super you tough okay? you up there. Yeah. <laughs> are they i've the response i've usually gotten because i went to school in San, i went to san jose state for my undergrad they were usually like ill or oh i'm sorry like you know and it's like okay that's rude (laughs) like I'm like you know and but then I also like I grew up not wanting to come back like I remember being that kid that I was like oh my god I hate the 209 I never want to come back and in college too I was like I'm never going back to the 209 and then like I did and I feel like this is where my work is now like I can't go anywhere else and I think it's really cool because we've been like Mayor Tubbs's um documentary just came out did you know about his Stockton on my mind documentary 
I heard of it. Okay, yeah, so I it. definitely should watch it. Super good. And he was interviewed by Jonathan Van Ness on his podcast, which I thought was really cool. He's the Queer Eye, one of the Queer Eye um, guys. And, mm-hmm. um, but he talks about that too. Like he said, like, I didn't want to come back either. <laughs> you know, like I was like, I'm done. So, but it's, I think it's so important that we teach them that Stockton has this really rich history um, that is important to share. And that history includes what led to what Stockton is today. And, and that the only way we're going to change it is if we, I think our kids, we all need to go experience the world, but we got to be willing to come back and like try something new and, and make a difference. Cause and I think Stockton is the greatest opportunity for that because we there's still so many abandoned buildings and there's still such a need for business. It's like it really is kind of primed for young people to kind of get their claws in and like try something, you know. So I don't know. It's really frustrating, though. That Stockton, <laughs> Sacramento, I think wherever you're doing it, as long as you're reinvesting in the community and, mm-hmm. uh, of the of those who are most vulnerable, that's what it's all about, because what happens to a lot of the talent it just gets invested outside in other places where you know we're not we're not benefiting we're not building on on the efforts of the past and we're not creating that strong foundation and and really these communities if we think about the history of them these communities that we're talking about these were once prosperous communities that were abandoned after integration you know a lot of these schools that we look at in Staunton that were once these prominent places, they after integration, I mean, a lot of people just left. And so if we choose to come back and do the things that, you know, Mayor Tubbs is talking about and invest in Stockton scholars and, and connect people to the resources to, so they can get education, they may feel like you're saying that they're a part of that family and that they, they're a part of this this effort and, and they might want to come back and, and give back to that to that effort. So. I'm curious about this kind of makes me think about kind of going back to specifically to you you teach science and there's a lot of it's become popular to talk about this although it's always been needed about um, being like deliberately anti-racist in our teachings and they they use the term like decolonizing our curriculum and stuff and I'm always for as an English teacher that's pretty easy we we introduce black authors Hispanic authors Asian authors like we talk about Um, you know, we can have discussions on race because speaking and listening is part of our curriculum. I'm curious, like, what what are your thoughts on how that looks in science? Because I feel like science and math, it's a little harder to be anti-racist. Like, what what does that look like in science? Um, I try to, so I'll give you an example. Um, Like, when I talk about cells, I talk about Henrietta Lacks. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, Henrietta Lacks, the African-American woman that... um, had um had a cancer she had cervical I think cervical cancer um and um her cells are known as the hella cells um mm-hmm. these are the her cells were the ones that helped develop the you know the polio vaccine so wow. many different scientific um discoveries her you know help you know, like her cells help help with that um and so i try to bring that up like her story um you know who she was you know what happened to her cells how you know, the, the laboratories like exploited her cells, mm-hmm. you know, they made all this money. They never, she never saw a cent, yeah. you know, and all that information. And, you know, so that the African-American students, they could see how they contributed, you know, how, how they contributed their contribution to science. And so every moment that I have, I try to, you know, if I see connections between 
different races, you know, with science, I, I try to bring them over. I try to connect them. Um, but that's an example, like what I do. Like I try to, like I talk about her um, and, you know, and I also show the kids like, look, like do you guys think it's fair that this lady, she, you know, they took her, you know, her cells, her body, and they used all, you know, her, her cells for, you know, to make scientific discoveries and she didn't get a cent. Like she even, like her family didn't even know about that. The yeah. family didn't even know that they were making money out of her cells. Right. And so we have, we have good conversations about that. So I guess it's, it's just introducing, like not just focusing on the science, the labs and the chemicals and the cells and the amoebas, but also talking about the people behind those discoveries. Yeah. yeah. yeah I don't even know. Um, Cause a lot of times they don't, you know, you don't hear in science, you know, you don't hear a lot about, you know, how women contribute into science. Right. You know, and then even, and then even like to make it even worse, how minorities contribute to science. And right. so, um, you know, if women are already not really represented in science, you know, that's a good way to start. Just try to bring up more women, um, like, you know, women that discover like, Ro- like Rosalind um, Franklin, mm-hmm. the lady, she was the one that helped discover, you know, the double helix, the DNA, yeah. but mm-hmm. she wasn't really, she wasn't really important because, you know, the, you know, Watson and Crick were the ones that took most of the credit. And so that type of stuff, like, that's what I try to bring up to the kids. Their names so are the can... ones on the exam, though. They're the they're the ones that we gotta remember for the exam. That's why <laughs> you gotta know Watson and Crick for the exam, so that's the one you remember. <laughs> yeah, but it's just like you know, just stuff like this. Like you know, I still you know, I still think teaching them the content is important. Like you know, you know, cells, metabolism, all that stuff. But I also think that it's important to to show them. You know, this is how this is why it's related to you. Mm-hmm. you know and then, and then even even relating to like diabetes you know yeah who, like, who's most likely to get diabetes exactly you know, what, what what different what different races and you know and then we could talk about why 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 do you think mm-hmm. that wow. african-americans latinos are the ones that are most likely to get diabetes mm-hmm. you know what do they eat you know how are their how, what's their how does their day-to-day life look like mm-hmm. you know just point out just point out some things because sometimes it's just hard for them to see Mm-hmm. You know, because nobody says it, you know, people just assume that they know or they just don't want to say anything, you know, so, so they don't excite the kids or make them angry or something. But I think it's just good for them to see different perspectives. I think that's important, too. I don't I'm trying to think back to the science classes I took in high school, and I don't remember anyone ever really bringing up the people, the scientists that discovered these things. Like they might have mentioned a name quickly in a book, like the textbook might have said, oh, this was discovered by so and so. Um, so even just that alone, it was kind of, like I said, it was always focused on like, let's just do the lab now and, um, and let's have you draw your graphic organizer and whatever. And, but looking like, as you're saying this, like, I probably would have been, I, I've always been interested in science. I wasn't like it. I got to be in science, but I liked it, <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> but like if they, if every lesson had been introduced with a, let's talk about the founder and, with and it was done with thoughtfulness like what you what you do with your kids of like not just any founder but the ones who are going to represent the students in the classroom man like i would have loved science class that probably would have been one of my favorite classes or even just acknowledging and this is going to come from kind of left field but i find it ridiculous that we don't have local knowledge of our own communities for example I mean, I was having this conversation with someone at work. I said, um, I was saying something about how before integration, 
like there were certain hospitals where you know minorities couldn't receive care and he was like no and i was like well i'm pretty sure that's definitely true and it was definitely more true in certain areas than others and he was like but how how could that so if you're telling me if i had an emergency and i went to a hospital and i wasn't white then i they wouldn't treat me and i was like there were some hospitals for sure where yes, that's the answer. Yeah, that's and absolutely. he just he, he couldn't he couldn't believe it. He was like, "No way!" And I was like, "Um, <laughs> I can't even believe that you can't believe that. That's right. like a known thing." Right, but <laughs> I like, think I think the wow. problem is that a lot of people, if you would bring that up, that's so shocking. Like, how how could that possibly be the case? Right. Well, <laughs> integration was it was it was throughout everything. People just think of integration as Brown v. Board and schools. But prior to Brown v. Board, it affected all public institutions, including hospitals. And and then if you think about it, it's like, well, no wonder there weren't that many scientists who were women or of color because they just weren't even allowed in those spaces. They weren't allowed to learn those skills oftentimes with alongside white people. And then they weren't even allowed to work alongside white people. There was a, a black wing of the hospital and a white wing, you know, or, or just no you know, whites only hospital, you know, that, that's just, that's just the way it was. And I, and the thing that I, I asked, I was like, I dare you to go down to St. Joseph's downtown Stockton and ask them when, when they had their first black doctor. Uh, do you know when they had the first black doctor at St. Joseph's? And he, he was like, no, I was like, they had to be at some time, right? It had to happen some, at some point in time, there was the first black doctor at St. Joseph's. And I guarantee you, it wasn't before, <laughs> you know, it wasn't before integration. And I was like, how do you think that worked out? What do you think that was like for them? I was like, this whole thing is just stuff we don't even think about. We don't even consider, like, why is it this way? And it's hard now because this is how it was just 50 years ago, just 60 years ago. You know, and, and people just seem to think, like, well, it is what it is, and we just should just accept it, and it's our fault if we can't fix it for ourselves. I don't know. Put things in a context, and you'll see, like, a different picture. That's what and I just think it's crazy we don't just, you know, tell the kids... I feel like if the kids knew this, it's like you'd, you'd have a, a better understanding of like, oh, I'm not dumb. Like, it's like, I'm not, I feel like for me personally, when I was a student and I was going through this and I didn't know any, I, well, I knew plenty of nurses, but <laughs> I didn't personally know like a lot of professional Filipinos. Most of the Filipinos I knew, the adults were in the military. And so, mm-hmm. like, I was like, that's what we do. And, hey, I joined the military, right? But if there, if there was that, I think I could have had a better idea of, like, what, you know, what society was like in other areas of, you know, other professions. But I just didn't have access to that. Yeah. Anyway, like, yeah. I, think, I think that a lot of times schools focus on, oh, let's just teach the kids the content. Mm-hmm. But you can the kids the content but at the same time try to relate it to their lives right you know you can't just if you just talk about the cells you know you could relate it to your you know your life i guess you know you're like oh if you you know if you have abnormal cells if can't you could get cancer you could talk about what's inside of a cell but really do the kids want to hear that all the time you know some kids would be fascinated but then other kids would be like well why is this important then you could go ahead and talk about look 
Like back in the day, they used to like, you know, you know, spray people with all these pesticides and that would damage their cells and that would cause them cancer. Like if you were to give them like a story, like a scenario, right. why this is important, then it, it, it all connects to them. And they're like, you know what? I feel like I'm just, I'm so interested in this now. Like I want to know more about this. You know, what if I want to be a scientist when I grow up? You know, you start triggering these things in their minds just because they don't see this. Like, you know, when, like it's so hard to see, see a lot of scientists of color, you know? And so if you... If you see, you know, if you hear all these stories of how it impacted your community or mm-hmm. you see people that look like you, then you're more likely to do that. Mm-hmm. And, it, and yeah, because you can't even going back to the cells as an example, you can't even see cells. So a lot of kids are going to be like, why should I care about something I can't even see? <laughs> you know? So yeah. that makes sense. I think to, to, to close out the podcast, to take it to a lighter note. Tell us what, tell us about life as a middle school sex education teacher. Yeah. What about themselves? It's so fun. <laughs> it's so fun. It's like, it's my favorite unit. You know, it's weird because at first when I started teaching, I was just, I would, I, I did not want to think about it. I would be, I was freaking out. I was like, oh my God, like these kids are going to ask these weird questions. How am I going to answer it with a straight face? You know, but, it's weird because I'm just, I'm so serious. I try to be so serious, you know, um, like the kids, like it's so funny because, um, so we normally go over the male reproductive system before we do female reproductive system. You know, the kids are, you know, the kids draw penises everywhere. Like the the boys, especially the boys, especially (laughs) draw penises everywhere. Right. Um, and you know, they're just, I don't know. I don't know why boys do that. Girls like, um, you know, girls don't do that. So we do the male anatomy first and everything's fine, right? The class is quiet. You know, the kids are, you know, it's a serious moment because, you know, the kids are learning about themselves. And then we do it with the female part and then everyone freaks out. Like when they see the female anatomy, I don't know why. Every single year. Oh my gosh. Maybe because they're not used to seeing that. (laughs) Like they're like, no, no one draws that. But everyone freaks out. You know, the girls are embarrassed, you know, um, The boys are just so interested, like, oh, really? Like, I thought girls, like, bled to death. Like, <laughs> like, like are, you, are you telling me, like, they only bleed this much? Like, like, yeah. Like, then why didn't make it seem like it's a big deal? Like, it's just so, it's just so <laughs> funny, like, to hear the boys, like, the misconceptions that the boys have about the female reproductive system. And then I have a question box um, where they, they could write, you know, their questions that they have, you know, about babies, about getting pregnant, you know, like, you know, and sometimes they even draw little diagrams. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's so funny. Like, like their misconceptions, what they have, you know, a lot of this stuff they hear from their friends. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, no, did you know you can't get pregnant if you just, if you, you know, if you lay down, you know, lay down for a while, you know, you won't get pregnant. I'm like, who said this to you? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, just like little, just misconceptions. Or I had one time I had a kid that said, oh, um, so if babies come, like if babies, babies come out from the same hole that you poop out, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, this is why I always make the point that women have three holes. <laughs> like, I always is that because then they, they start saying that, oh, wait, but why do they come up? They come out from the same hole that you poop, that you poop. That's called a no. food baby. A <laughs> food baby. <laughs> that's what that's called. I had a couple of those earlier. <laughs> Yeah, but they're 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 the way that they think about things is just so funny. Do you because see, they're so they're so innocent still. Do you ever oh, do you man. see a difference from the beginning of the unit to the end of the unit in like their confidence with it, or are they still embarrassed? No, I think I think as the unit goes by, they feel more comfortable. 
because we usually spend like two, three weeks on it. So at first, they're just so scared. They're, they're super quiet. They just don't want to ask questions. Or because um, I, I always tell them, like, we're, we're not going to say we're not going to say dick. We're going to say penis. You know, we're going to say vagina. We're going to say these words. Right. OK. So if you tell me like the slang word, I'm going to make you say the real word. Right. And so um, at the end, you know, they feel comfortable with it. Like they, you know, they say the words. They, they're not going to just, you know, because they, they know they have they know what they're expected. So they feel more comfortable. They ask more questions. You know, they they become they become little experts at, at it. But but it's, you know, the first couple of days is pretty quiet and they're pretty embarrassed. Then afterwards, they, they open up. And, you know, they don't even want the unit to end. <laughs> They're like, all right. They have more questions. They're like, They're like you're not going to tell my mom, are you? <laughs> I think that's so important because so in the military, I was a unit victim advocate. They don't call them that anymore. But it was, I don't know, they have another name for it. But it was developed by the um, SHARP program, which is kind of in the news right now because of what happened to Vanessa Guillen. And I, I just read there was another soldier that was found um, murdered and uh, he may have been sexually assaulted as well. Um, so when I was training to be a unit victim advocate, which was basically, um, every battalion had to have two of them. And our job was to be an advocate for a victim of sexual assault. And, um, and so, and it, usually it was green on green crime. So it was when a soldier raped another soldier. And, um, so when we're in the training, that was one of the things they said too. They're like, you need to use the anatomically correct verbiage because, um, if they use any kind of word, like even, if, and, and so they were telling us as, as advocates, we had to really help our survivors be comfortable with that because when they get interrogated by, um, I hate to say interrogated, but sometimes they are interrogated, but when they're being interviewed by the CID or when they have to go talk to the nurse or whatever, they're going to ask them, where did he touch you or where were, you know, and, and it's like, you've, you've got to get comfortable with the word because in a court. If you call it a, a, a pee-pee, they're going to be like, okay, what exactly is that? Because we don't have a science. The scientific term is a penis. And if you say penis, it's there's no question what part you're talking about, right? So I think, I, I think it's important on so many levels. But for me, that's the one I always think about because that was part of our training is like – and even with my mm -hmm. own kids, like I told them when we had our daughter, I was like, we have to teach – we're going to use anatomically correct words. And, and I made a point of teaching her, her body parts, like you teach the face. Right. But then like in the bath, I was like, this is what these are called because I just, that training for me was so powerful. And I learned so much about how the court system works in sexual assault. And so like it, it, my kids, they, and it was, and then that's backfired sometimes mm -hmm. because one day my daughter walked in on my brother going to the bathroom and she said, Oh, you have a penis. And he was super embarrassed. She was like three years old. She didn't know, but like, he was like, get out. But like I was, but then he told me, so why did you teach her that? I go, because if somebody tries to make her touch one, I want her to be able to tell me. <laughs> like, you know, So yeah. I think that's such an important thing too, that, yeah, they've got to get comfortable with those words because yeah. if they are being harmed or are harmed in the future, um, they've got to be able to say what happened and you're already in a traumatic yeah. state as it is. So it, it's just so important that we, we arm them with whatever we can to protect themselves or to at least speak up for themselves once something has been committed. So. Yeah, they need to know those things. And then what, um, you know, compared to the family life that we had when I was in middle school, like now we talk about sexual harassment, mm. you know, that's part of the curriculum, um, human trafficking. We also talk about LGBTQ plus. Yeah. You know, stuff like that, yeah. that um, it's also pretty important because, you know, you hear they hear all this stuff. 
you know, from other sources, but they don't, you know, they need to hear like what it is, you know, because a lot of kids throw out the word rape a lot. They're like, oh, yeah, rape, rape. And I'm like, do you even know what rape is? Right, right. (laughs) Or do you even know what gay is when you say, oh, that's so gay? And so, you know, it's just just showing them what it is, what they're saying, you know, and putting it in perspective makes a huge difference, too. So it's not just about the, the anatomy of the different parts, but it's also, you know, everything that could happen to them what's sexual harassment what's rape mm-hmm. what's you know human trafficking you know what's consent exactly and and even knowing the people around you i think the lgbtq part is important because they need to know like at that age too a lot of kids are not out and um they've got to be careful with their words and 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 then I, the rape thing too there's there's a lot of kids we, as we know as teachers that are are being harmed sexually um in their home life and um, making a rape joke can be really triggering, you know? And so like there's, there's social repercussions when we don't teach our young children the correct words, um, to teach them the processes of what is, what is, how are things supposed to work and how they're not supposed to work? Um, yeah. So I applaud you for, for loving what you do because I just, I don't know if I could ever teach sex education. Like I just super terrifying (laughs) and I'd be scarred. I'm sure of it. You are, you are a gift to your child, to the children you work with and, and, uh, to your staff, I'm sure. Uh, I don't know everything about like your career so far, but I know that you have a bright future and I know that you're going to do so much good for these kids and, and you're going to keep doing amazing things. I really appreciate the time. Uh, appreciate the work you've been doing. And uh, we just finished an hour and a half. So. <laughs> yeah, thanks for being with us. Thank you. I really, like, this was so engaging. Like, it was so much. I was like, oh, you guys made me think a lot of stuff. <laughs> a lot of stuff that I forgot about, you know, a while back. Yeah. Like a lot of stuff about, you know, like race and Stockton yeah don't sleep on the filipino no. <laughs> uh, it's awesome i'm really happy that you had a chance to come and talk to us even though we pushed it back a little I bit know we had a lot of rescheduling with this one but yeah. we made it <laughs> thank you so much for listening to educators not robots we hope you enjoyed today's episode If you like our podcast, please subscribe on whatever platform you access your podcasts on and leave us a review. Whenever we get reviews, it helps boost visibility for our podcast and so we can draw in more listeners. Thanks again for your support and we hope that you listen again soon.